Hello and welcome back to Control Alt Delete. My guest today is Pamela Paul, the editor of the New York Times Book Review. She oversees all books coverage at the New York Times, bit of a dream job there, and she is also the host of the weekly book review podcast. She is the author and editor also of six books, including My Life with Bob and By the Book, Writers on Literature and the Literary Life. Her book has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic and Vogue. And today we're discussing her brand new book called 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. This book's title just immediately pricked my ears up and I really wanted to read it because I've also been thinking a lot about the past and about my new book, Disconnected, which looks at how we can get some of that old classic joy that we used to get from the internet back. In her book, she presents 100 glimpses of that pre-internet world, the captivating record of the world before cyberspace. From voicemails, to blind dates, to punctuation, to bad photos, it's funny, nostalgic, analytic, warm, and it's all about the things we tend to forget about that were part of our lives for so long. It'll have you reminiscing with friends, it'll have you laughing, and it'll also have you feeling grateful for what the internet has brought to our lives. Hope you enjoy this episode. Enjoy and go and pre-order the book. So I'm thrilled to have Pamela Paul on the podcast. I've just finished reading your latest book and I absolutely loved it. I can't wait to dig into it in all, all, all its details. But um, just to kick off for the listener's sake, I you probably get this all the time, but your job title, the editor of the New York Times Book Review and overseeing all the book stuff, it just seems like the dreamiest job in the world. Do you get ask that a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, it is the dreamiest job in all the world. I honestly feel like if you didn't think this was the g- dreamiest job in all the world, then you shouldn't have it, you know, because <laughs> I look for some people, like they definitely would not want to quote unquote, have to read books all the time and talk about books all the time. That is not me. I expect that that is not you, Emma, and probably not a lot of your listeners. Like for me, this is the ideal, um, Thing. So I feel very, very lucky um, to be doing it. It's 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 nice to be in probably my favorite art form, medium, and also to be in a newsroom, but not generally speaking, to have to constantly be covering breaking news. Although, of course, there is breaking news in books. I totally agree. And I feel like it's the biggest privilege in the world to read books before they've come out. I just sometimes have to pinch myself that that is part of my job and that I'm reading something that's not coming out for another year or so. And it's probably very annoying for my friends, but I I never take that for granted. Oh, no, absolutely. I love it. And and my children also really love like being the first person to get the latest in a new series or to have, you know, a JK Rowling book before it comes out. Like, so it's now a, a like a kind of family privilege that um, I hope we don't sound too snotty about, but we're very pleased with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the real life uh, moment in The Devil Wears Prada. But, yes, um, yes. No, I completely agree. It, it, I can't imagine how fun it can be to oversee such a prestigious part of a newspaper as well so it's, it's amazing I get asked this a lot so I really wanted to ask you and I I don't know if I have an answer for it but people always ask me do you split out your reading for work and for pleasure do you have a boundary between them or is it just all one sort of merge for you 
You know, for the most part, I read for pleasure. The work reading that I do, it's pleasure as well. Um, I, I feel, again, once again, really lucky because in many aspects, there are many roles on the book review desk where on the book's desk where you have to read things because someone has to and it's your turn. Um, but I do most of my reading when I am either um, deciding who to have on my own podcast or um, as a guest, or I do it when we're trying to determine what the best books of the year are. And that's a year long process at the book review. And so we're reading the contenders. So they're kind of the best of the best already. So I feel really lucky. Um, and I do, however, reserve most of my reading time for pleasure reading and that it's not strictly on the news. It's not all books that are coming out, you know, in the next six months. I love to read old books and I often, you know, only read books like a long time after they come out. I, I actually, I think I just admitted this publicly recently, but I've never read Jonathan Franzen. It's out of no form of policy or anything. It's just I haven't gotten around to it, but I feel like I should. So I may go back and, and read the correction soon. And is that work? I don't know. I, I think it's pleasure. Sometimes that for me is the signal that it's for pleasure if I'm coming to something really late or, you know, I've missed the hype or I've missed the buzz and I just, I'm on like a beach somewhere and I've picked something up from the airport and it's just really lovely to do that. But um, you, you mentioned the podcast, that hit a milestone recently didn't it is it 15 years yeah it's it's the oldest longest running podcast at the new york times so oh, um yeah. it's it's been 15 years back when you know people didn't know what a podcast was it was like back when people said weblog instead of blog you know it was like really early internet days it was 2006 and my predecessors uh at the book review started it up and then passed over the mantle to me about eight years ago. Um, so it's a really fun part of, um, of the job and it's you know constantly evolving. One of the things we added a few years ago was a segment in which my colleagues and I, or the critics and I on the desk, will talk about what we're reading, what we're reviewing, sort of what's going on in our own reading lives. And that's a lot of fun as well, in addition to doing the author interviews. I read somewhere that you, you love biography and memoirs, one of your favorite types of genre of book and is there a reason why you love those so much because I I really gravitate towards memoir as well yeah I mean it's interesting if that really started when I was a child I was really drawn to the biography wall of the children's uh library in my town um and you know sort of <laughs> slim pickings if you were looking for books about other girls, because basically it was, you know, presidential wives, it was Dolly Madison and Abigail Adams. And then there were the nurses, Florence Nightingale, and, you know, you had Helen Keller, of course. Um, but the reason I think I was drawn to those is that for me, they were like guidebooks to living. I, I thought, well, this is how this person got to where they, you know, where they were um, in terms of achievement and the pattern of their life. And I, I kind of wanted to see how they did it. So it was sort of like a self-help and a kind of guide to see. And then also, you know, gave me a lot of perspective. I remember, you know, thinking that when I was upset about something, I would compare myself with Helen Keller and be like, look, kid, you've got it easy. <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. whatever your complaint is about what's going on in your life, like you did not have those challenges. Um, and so, you know, 
quit your complaining. <laughs> it's like my internal, like, you know, um, mean aunt or something um, that would uh, berate me if I was uh, feeling overly blue. But that carried on into adulthood. I really do love reading about other people's lives. And then with memoir, which of course is different from autobiography, I find it so interesting the way that you can choose to look at your life through many different lenses. And, and you know, and there you get into autofiction as well, which obviously is having an extended moment in our culture. But I'm, I'm just really interested in how people draw from their lives and create narratives out of those things. So talking about your latest book, I, by the way, I have ordered your memoir on um, Bookshop to arrive. So I'm excited to read that and read more of your work. But I, I really loved this latest book, A Hundred Things We've Lost to the Internet. It's, I guess it's essays, but it's, some of them are quite short form and very pithy and very funny. And I really, really enjoyed it. And I know that you mentioned in the acknowledgements, you know, that you wrote some of this during lockdown I mean Mm -hmm. did this idea come to you before then because I know you wrote that amazing op-ed on boredom how did this come about this you know at this time um yeah I mean I think of this as the sort of 100 chapters 100 sometimes very short chapters as opposed to essays and the idea did come from a few things um and it was well before lockdown um so one thing as you mentioned I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times um that in my mind was called the lost art of boredom and I think the headline ended up being let your children get bored again but it was really the fact you know that I think dawns on all of us whether we have kids or not that there's really no downtime, except maybe when you're in the shower, you know, no longer even when you're driving, no longer when you're running, because you can have, you know, an Apple watch on, or you might be, have, have the internet connected to a phone mounted on your bike, you know, we're not immersed anymore in what can be a very boring, you know, long moment that we used to have. So growing up, you were kind of stuck in the backseat of the car um, for hours, like sometimes with like nothing, you know, if either your parents bad music playing or like nothing, you know, on the radio and, um, and you just had to make do, you just had to stare at the window, you let your brain kind of wander. But now we all have access to this thing that we call a phone, but really <laughs> very few of us use it as a phone. It's, it's a, it's a portable internet device and you can, entertain yourself, inform yourself, divert yourself with any number of things, whether it's game or quick Google or checking social media or going through your email at any given moment. And we all do it, right? Like anytime you have a free moment, you're like, oh, well, I'm just standing here. I'll just go into spelling bee and get a few more words or like, sorry, that's a, a New York Times game that I like. Um, or I'm just going to like click and make sure there's no more email that arrived. And, and all of us probably have like, you know, three or four email accounts at this point, And you have to kind of check them all. I mean, we use that time. You catch up on headlines. You look at your notifications. So we don't have boredom anymore. And I thought that was really interesting. And I wanted to think about what it is that we lose without having boredom um, in our lives. So that was that initial essay that I wrote. Then simultaneously, I'd been thinking about sort of all the collective things that either infuriate or depress me. Um, And when I thought about what they were, they often were ways in which I felt like technology and our everyday lives, whether personalized our relationships or our work lives had been altered in a way that I thought was not always for the best. 
And then what I wanted to do, however, in writing this book is kind of take away that depression and that anger, because those are really like easy go-to places for me of like Mm -hmm. the most pessimistic way to see something and try to instead take out that part that like, what does this all mean for us? And how did this happen? And really settle into a place that I felt like was a little bit more bittersweet and maybe nostalgic Mm -hmm. of like, you know what, let's actually pause for a moment and let's think about instead of focusing on the future and like, what does it mean now that we no longer do X or have Y, let's think about what it it was like before. Let's pause and actually try to recapture that. And then that got me to, I think, a much more pleasant place. And, And the other thing about it too, is that the internet isn't all bad, you know, like you and I are here, you're, you know, somewhere in England, I am somewhere in New York, we are having this podcast conversation, we could not do this without the internet. So the internet is full of all kinds of great things. I wanted to show some of the nuance there, some of the complexity of like, well, we've lost this thing. Some of it's good, some of it's bad, like the blind date that's something that we've lost, right? You don't really have a blind date anymore. You Google the hell out of someone before you agree to spend an evening with a person, you know, like, and they're doing it to you too. Like we all do. You don't go into any situation, any situation blind before you respond to an email, you look that person up. You like, you, you've got a ton of information at your disposal. So do you lose something? Sure. You lose the like complete magical, possibly like bad magic of, of meeting someone, you know, that you've never seen before. You have no idea. All you know is a few things about, you know, him or her from your friends, um, whoever set you up. And so you, you've gained something, right? You've avoided probably a lot of really miserable nights out, but you lost something too. And so those are the kinds of situations I wanted to write about those things where, you know, it's, it's just different. And let's pause for a moment and think about how it's different and what that means. Yes, absolutely. Because when I saw the title of the book, I guess I first thought, you know, will this be a book about loss and times before being better? You know, that sort of perspective. But actually, when I read it, I realized actually this is such a, like you said, bittersweet book about nostalgia. And it's such a funny emotion, nostalgia, isn't it? Because you're, you are pining for something that we don't have anymore, but you can all also appreciate that things have moved on and life moves on. And that is just the way of the world. And I remember a psychologist friend of mine during the lockdown saying that we were being more nostalgic in lockdown because when we can't go forward, our brains have the tendency to go backwards. And I had this really beautiful time where I was looking at old Spotify playlists. I was contacting old school friends. I I had these memories that I hadn't had for years. And your book was it really captured that that spirit and I I loved it yeah I mean it's funny I I wanted to capture some of the things that I missed but I also wanted to you know I I tend to be nostalgic for things that like I never even lived through you know like I can read (laughs) scenes in an Edith Wharton novel or in Henry James or George Elliott and think like I miss that I never even had it you know so who am I kidding so I also wanted this to kind of be like something for my children's generation and and, and just people in their 20s and their 30s now who wonder what it was like before time, you know, change has accelerated so quickly, so much more quickly than it did for us that the things that like our parents 
and so I'm saying us, and I don't even know if you're if you're us, but the pre-digital generation, people who grew up without the internet, fully came of age, know what life was like before. Our lives, our parents' lives, like my parents' lives, it was different from mine, but it wasn't that different. It wasn't as fundamentally different. Technology, you know, technological change has just been so rapid and so omnipresent. And it's sometimes startling to think of the tiny things that our own kids, you know, just have no idea didn't exist before them. And, and it's not all internet, of course. I had this really odd, you know, startling moment with my 16-year-old daughter a few months ago where, you know, like many people, we put keys in places where keys don't always um, get readily found. And so I was looking for a key to the car and all I could find was the one that didn't have the little remote control operator. It's just like a key on a little ring. And so I brought it out and I stuck it in the door and I opened up the door manually. And my daughter was like, you can open a car <laughs> with a key. <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah, like it never even would occur to me that that would be surprising to her. But of course, who opens a car with a key anymore? Wow. Oh my goodness. It's funny because this podcast, Control Alt Delete, is actually a is based on the book I wrote uh, six years ago now. And um it's it's about being, you know, classically millennial and growing up and getting a phone when I was into my late teens. So I did have a childhood offline, but then I very, very quickly became a digital native person who works on the internet. And, you know, in that book I did want to talk about CD ROMs and dial up and floppy disks and all this dinosaur stuff because one day we will look back and just find it so amusing and I feel like we're getting there already where we think this stuff seems wild and I know in the intro you talk about this reddit thread and how meta it is that you're reminiscing via reddit but how did you transport yourself back because you you know there's a hundred things in this book it's it's incredible where you've gone yeah, I mean, it's it was an interesting book to work on because it just required really going through all aspects, not just of my own daily life, but the lives of my kids, the lives of people I know, people who are older than me and thinking, what what's it like now and what was it like then? So, you know, I didn't play, for example, fantasy baseball, but for a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people do did and it's really different now i similarly i don't have a poker game that meets every you know thursday night over drinks and so i don't realize the extent to which online poker has completely transformed how you play poker um but i i it was that effort to kind of really go through every aspect of our lives to think about well, finance how is that different i mean think about that and again, this didn't affect my life because I didn't have any money to invest, but you really did have to call up a broker. You had to find a broker, you know, and, and you had to call them up and you had to look at stock tables and know how to read them in the newspaper. And now like anyone can buy or trade stocks all day long. And people do that, um, who, you know, don't even work in finance. Um, so they're just these massive changes that it required really a lot of, um, just sitting, sitting in, in in those thoughts, and also looking at looking at all of the technological tools that are at our disposal online. Um, and again, it's hard to remember what life was like before. So it really did require kind of thinking it out. We develop habits so quickly 
right? And, and, and they become, it's almost, again, it's like hard to remember what life was like before, but let's yeah. just take the weather. I mean, the fact that we all have minute to minute updates of the weather, weather, on our phones, so like on the internet, <laughs> I, I'm using the word phone, but I really mean the internet, any second of the day, right? And you and you trust it so much that you look at it first before you even look at the window. You're like, oh, is it raining or is it going to rain in the next 20 minutes? And you look at that and then you look outside, right? Gosh. We didn't yeah. know, like you just didn't know. And what were you going to do? Sit around and wait for the weather report to come on the radio to find out? What you knew was what you saw on TV or read in the paper that morning, if you did that. Other than that, it was a total mystery, you know, and we're never, we're never unaware of what the weather is, was 10 minutes ago, is going to be in the next 10 minutes, not only where we are, but where we're going to be tomorrow, where we are, we know what we're planning to do that weekend, what we're going to need weather-wise when we travel, you know, on vacation a month ahead of, you know, ahead of, ahead of us. It's just, you had to go and look that up in the encyclopedia, if you wanted to know, like, what's the weather in, you know, um, in Madagascar in August, we want to go on vacation, you go to the, you know, library and look it up in the encyclopedia, and they would have weather tables. And that's where you would find that out. goodness it's so true I look at the I look at my phone and look at the temperature of the weather outside before I even look out of the window yeah and, and if it's wrong it's like betrayal right <laughs> yes yeah and it's I think what I loved about your book and I think a lot of people will love about it too is this it's almost like a trigger to your own memories because we're kind of getting an insight into yours but then you're thinking oh my god I remember that time where my dad gave me a whole world atlas to go on a road trip to go and see my friend like half an hour away because there were no maps there were no google maps and I I am horrified at how much I depend on that blue little blue dot on the google maps when actually I should probably know my way now yeah. <laughs> just by doing that journey a few times, but I still need it. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, it's, it's taking those moments and deconstructing them down to the kind of minutia. So it used to be, if you went and you stayed with someone, right? Like I go and I'd stay with my in-laws in LA and my mother-in-law is really good with directions. Right. So, you know, first, of course, there's that argument, like who's going to give directions? Like, uh, you know, then who knows the traffic patterns better then someone writes them down and you know you develop a way to like note when there's a left turn and when there's a right turn and how long it's going to take and what the traffic looks like and then you'd put it like on the car seat you know on the on the seat next to you or someone would be the designated like reader in your in your you know passenger seat to tell you what to do we don't have any of that anymore so the whole art of giving directions of reading maps remember you used to have maps that would be these like huge fold out road maps these grand <laughs> mcnally maps or these thomas cook you know maps and they'd be tucked in the side of your car and they wouldn't be updated all the time so they didn't know when highways were under construction it wasn't like ways where they could tell you what the traffic was you know at any given moment and offer an alternate path and then when you think about all of the ways in which having Google Maps or Apple Maps has changed how we get around. Like nowadays, if you're following one of those map apps, you end up on these roads where you just know, you're like, there is no way 
that this is like the real way to get here, you know, to, from A to Z. This is some special optimized route that this app has figured out because you're on all these little teeny back roads, right? There's no gas stations. It used to be that traffic planners kind of knew which way people were going to go. And so those roads would have service, you know, stations, they would have gas stations, they would be, you know, there would be restaurants and things and takeout places that would be build their business around the fact that this is where the traffic goes. It's no longer where the traffic goes necessarily. Like you find yourself in these residential neighborhoods and then think about that, how that affects those residences that are there on these routes in, in, you know, in residential areas that once had very quiet streets that their kids could walk on at night. And now, you know, Google maps has sort of decided that this is the best place to get from, you know, A to D and now yeah. it's full of traffic. You know, it's just completely altered all of our lives. It's crazy how much it's impacted those things that you wouldn't necessarily first think of. I mean, I wonder if we are so anxious because we hold so much importance now with everything being on our phones, because I didn't bring my phone charger on a trip recently. And I literally started sweating because I was <laughs> so scared. You know, it's my alarm. It's my, you know, my map. It's the way I contact my friends. It's it's absolutely everything. And, you know, you look back and think back to our grandparents' generation where they would just work it out. They would They would figure it out and they would get somewhere and they would be fine. Right. Well, you know, it's all of these little daily things. It's those little daily anxieties that I wanted to get at at this book because, of course, you know, especially right now, I think people are realizing there is a lot of downside to big tech, to the power that they have, to the economy that they've sort of has, has risen up around them in terms of how it affects workers, in terms of how it affects our politics, how it affects elections, the rise of misinformation. There are a lot of big, 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 big things out there. And there are a lot of articles written about that and books about that. And I wanted to say, hey, let's just, let's just, bore down a little bit um, on the daily level on those little things. Some of them, you know, are quite big because, you know, again, a blind date may be how you end up meeting your eventual partner um, for life. So, you know, they, they are meaningful, but they're generally not the kinds of things that have, you know, politicians sort of wringing their hair over. Mm. Yeah, I loved um, what you spoke about with photos and how our photo habit has changed so much. We curate this one perfect photo to sum up this amazing weekend. Whereas it used to be uploading, te you know, a hundred photos of someone, the back of someone's head, you know, just so flippantly sharing. And now we're so careful what we share. It's funny. I wonder if yeah. it'll go back round. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, as teenagers, like for the most part, again, unless you were like, you know, um, genetically anonymous and, and um, perfectly beautiful, would like run from a camera, you know, especially if there was an adult wielding it. You just, maybe with the small group of friends, you would take like a group of drunken Polaroids or something together. Um, but for the most part, you really didn't like to be photographed if, if you were a teenager, like that was your most awkward time. Um, and it's, you know, it was notoriously difficult to get teenagers like it to, to sit for family photos. It's stunning to think about how much teenagers love taking pictures of themselves today. It's like, what happened, you know? And, and that's what's so interesting to me. Did the technology change us? Did the fact that a kind of whole social life 
around photo taking, whether it's not Snapchat or any other, you know, social media platform, did that change the way teenagers like to think about themselves? And, and what's amazing is you can kind of document these trends in posing, right? Like at one point it's the sticking out the tongue and that lasted, I mean, at one point that's lasted for years. Um, but then there's like the cross-eyed and the poke, you know, the, the weird mm -hmm. puckering face and, and, you know, again, it's just like, it, it, it's a huge um, pastime among teenagers. They, like Snapchat is for the most part, not taking pictures of your camera facing out. It's of your camera facing you. Yeah. And building that identity and having that control. And it's a whole new thing. Yeah. I, I wanted to bring up the chapter on magazines, actually, because I thought it was probably quite apt to talk, talk to you about it as well, having worked in that world for so long. That that chapter did make me sad, actually, for the loss of magazines, because there's nothing to me that can replace like the physical form. Same with yeah. books. I'm so not interested in having a Kindle. And, you know, has I know that's its pros and cons with the way the internet has shaped our media, but how has that been for you sort of in your career, seeing that shift? Well, I mean, first I'll talk about it as a consumer. I love magazines and it's not as bad in the UK as it is in the US. I mean, at least the last time I was in the UK, which is now a few years ago, you still had most of the magazines that were around in the early aughts and in the 90s. And they aren't as slim as they are here. I think they're is still a belief in print advertising as a as a very effective way of getting to end consumers and and the reality is is that advertising is the primary economic driver of magazines that's what sells magazines and keeps them you know financially viable for their owners in addition to subscribers but what happened when advertisers all basically fled print on mass for the internet where quite frankly many people use advertising blockers or don't look at the advertisers at all, advertisements at all. So, but the result was editors could no longer support the kind of editorial that they wanted to run because they didn't have the pages to do it. So magazines just got thinner and thinner. And then it just becomes like a death spiral because if you're a subscriber, you're like, why would I want to subscribe to this thin little thing that, that you know, and they've had to raise the price of it so much in order to get more people to subscribe. Most magazines haven't figured out the financial model. And unfortunately, advertising hasn't returned to print, even though it's clear that digital advertising doesn't necessarily work you know, as well as print magazines or is as effective. It's more easily tracked, but it doesn't necessarily uh, work. And what's interesting too, is that part of the great joy of magazines was in the advertisements. You know, It was in seeing, like if you were looking at a fashion magazine, it was in seeing what are the new, you know, fashions out there that are being you know run by various retailers by designers what is for sale you know in addition to reading the editorial and so that has just been a huge loss because from an early age I mean for me from probably around the age 13 14 I lived my months like my time was marked out in magazines it was when various magazines came out whether they were movie magazines or gossip magazines or fashion magazines or general interest magazines or you know hobby magazines I really loved all of them um, I loved you know travel magazines I loved news magazines I loved all of the weeklies so I knew you know Friday is when the economist hits the newsstand Monday is when time and newsweek hit the newsstand um, I knew every time of month you know 
know, when Vanity Fair would come out. And what you lose too, especially as you get older, is you lose a lot of the great magazine writing. And it's not to say that there isn't good magazine writing um, that is online, but you you do lose something. You lose the curation of having, here is an editor with their entire team putting together all the best things that they think you should read and look at um, and think about in this given week or month, um, all together, you know, laid out in a particular order, meant to be read and consumed in a certain way and, and bring you into that kind of community of readers. And again, a lot of it is online now. There's still a lot of really great content as we now call it, but it's, it's scattered, you know, and you're not yeah. seeing it all together and you don't have that physical like joy of digging into a big thick magazine. I was in an airport yesterday and it used to be like the most fun thing to go to the newsstand and just gather up a huge pile to bring on the airplane. And it's unfortunately slim mm -hmm. pickings now. So interesting that I didn't realize actually that the difference between US and the UK, because I do, yeah, I do think we still have quite physical um, media here. And I love on a Sunday getting all the papers and reading all the supplements. And it's just such a joy. I think if that disappeared, I'd be really upset. Um, but like, like um, I said, you know, to people listening, this book really ranges so many topics. I feel like I could talk to you for hours because there's really, really meaty, big, huge topics that actually sum up the, the way the world is completely changing, but then also smaller kind of funnier bits as well about, you know, how we don't sleep anymore and we <laughs> Don't have that fun moment of guessing anything in a pub or without getting Google out. Right, right. Well, we have to laugh at it too. It, it's it'll be too grim <laughs> yeah, otherwise. Exactly. We'll laugh at ourselves and the kind of ludicrous ways in which we've altered our lives, really, to just yes. to to like who's controlling who? Are the tools controlling us? Or I don't know that we're controlling these tools. Oh, 100%. Uh, there is a chapter on productivity. I did want to ask you and sort of link this just to, you know, how you wrote this book. Obviously, you're super busy in your day job and you also have written so many books. I know that you mentioned that you wrote on a train and you went for long walks and that was really useful. But how did you kind of fit this in? And did you, you know, I know you said you had to kind of get in that sort of reflective frame of mind to really go there. Yeah. Um, gross neglect of my three children. Uh, no, 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 not that. Um, I, I did write it on my train, uh, on the train, on my commute back when I had a commute. And so lockdown definitely threw a wrench into that kind of very clear compartmentalization of my life because I have a busy day job editing the book review and overseeing the book's coverage. And it's like a, a more than full-time job. And then I have three full-time children. So um I had to find ways to, to carve it in. And um, and the sad reality is that once we went into lockdown, I had to just figure out different things that had to stay and 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 change and things that had to go. And um essentially got to watch no TV and no movies and do nothing fun, um, but worked. Um, what was interesting about being in lockdown is that all of us, of course, were online all the time before lockdown, but I think that having every real life in real life activity and interaction suddenly removed from our lives made us go from maybe 90% online to like 160% of our lives being online. And so that was really kind of helpful to sort of drove home like, wow, just how much of this has changed. And again, going back to the point, it's not all bad. Like some of it's great. How would we have gotten 
how would I have gotten my job done? And many people who didn't have, you know, who had jobs that could be done. Again, luckily, um, it's a it's a privilege to have been able to work during this period, but only because I could do it online. I wouldn't have been able. Like I cannot imagine how a news organization would function without the internet during something like lockdown. It would have just been impossible. Um, but again, being forced to be so online was actually quite helpful because it really again brought home like there there are these losses and i think it it made it clear to all of us right like if you had a child in kindergarten who was used to going off to kindergarten and being with a bunch of kids some of whom would be nice and lovely and wonderful to hang out with and they'd have physical contact and you know get to play on a playground and climb together and others who you know maybe looked at you it was funny or gave you you know said something and you had to have you had, like learn how to negotiate your way socially right which is so much a part of what being a kid is, it's like learning to interpret those social cues, to, to communicate with one another, to get along, to figure out how to, how to work things out on a playground and in a classroom. And suddenly all of that wiped out, just no longer available. And instead your five-year-old has to sit down um, in front of a computer and go onto a Zoom and stare at a bunch of squares and never get to meet their teacher, never get to really know what she's like, never get to meet their new peers. Maybe they're in a new school, in a new town. They don't know anyone. You can't connect with the people in a Zoom. You know, there's no way yeah. to lean over to the kid next to you at the desk next to you and whisper something and giggle and start to form a friendship. So I think that experience really brought home to people like, huh, this is what it would mean to be purely online. This is what we lose when we interact only online. Yeah. And, and this is why your book feels so, so perfectly timed. I know that you're working on it before, but it really does feel so relevant and so needed. And it, it's just a really warm lovely book and I recommend it to everyone and and it really does sum up that weird gap or liminal space we're in at the moment where we are allowed to miss and mourn the lives we had or at least the lives before the internet and we're allowed to also you know like you say realize the internet is not all bad at all and it's it's like those two things can exist together yeah I mean that's what again I was hoping it's so it's so hard to find time to do anything right now. It's so hard to find time to pause, to reflect. And that's what I was trying to do because everything is changing so quickly. It's almost everything we can do. Like all we can do is just to keep up. Like, wait, what's next? What, how do you use this thing? What's this app? How does that work? Um, you know, should I use Venmo or should I use Zelly or like, what's the, you know, how do I do this? Do I have Apple pay? Um, that we don't sort of pause and, and think like, wait a minute, we used to like, pay by checks. <laughs> like, remember checks? Remember when everyone had a checkbook? Remember when you used to like order a checkbook, like and get like an embossed leather checkbook holder? Like how strange is that, you know? And like you had to sometimes have it like double endorsed and like, what if you lost a check? And then you think back and you think, oh, and like, you used to learn how in school, I don't know if they did this in the UK, but you would learn how to write a check and you'd have like a work book, you know, a page in your workbook where you like wrote it out and you knew, oh, you don't put and in between, you know, the dollars and the, and the, and, uh, you know, the tens and the, and the hundreds, you yeah. only put it at the end and like, and it was like, and if you should dare make a single mistake, your check <laughs> is ruined, you know, and it was just like, it was very like, 
and again, it's just sort of pausing to just, we're so focused on what, like, what's next? How do I keep up? That I thought it was a kind of interesting and important thing to do to kind of look back. And also, you know, all this change that happens, it's not like we're helpless in the face of it. It's not like you can just, you know, it's not like you have to do all these things and have to download every app and make every change. Like we do have a certain amount of choice um, still on many things. So I was hoping, you know, in a way to remind people, like you can kind of opt out on some of this. Yes. I feel less anxious listening to you talk just then because I think that is the antidote sometimes to the anxiety is to zoom out, look at the bigger picture. Remember that, you know, if you're worried about how Substack works or whatever little niche thing you've got going on in your head that day, it's like, hang on a minute. (laughs) Life is life is not it's not so zoomed in I guess yeah well look if I can make anyone if I can make you feel slightly less anxious with my writing I feel like goal achieved like (laughs) we could all use anything that makes us slightly less anxious yes it really did and that's such a lovely note to end on because I do feel like now I can take all of this wisdom and go and reflect this evening but another reason it really brings so much fun and that sort of reduce of anxiety is the beautiful illustrations as well they're so fun they really oh my bring to God. Life all the brilliant chapters um well I didn't draw them that is the work of a brilliant Nishant Choksi who is uh does live in uh in England um and and works from there so all credit due to him. I'll have to check out more of the work, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm a huge admirer of everything that you do and so really thrilled that you came on the podcast and we spoke about the book. Thank you so much. Oh, Emma, it was such a pleasure. Thank you.